How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In context. You're listening to Michael Easley in Context, and we're so glad you're here today. You're listening to Episode 3 of A Living Hope in Hopeless Times, a study of First Peter. And in this episode, Michael teaches from First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Inheritance is an interesting thing because you're bequeathing stuff to people um, that they may or may not appreciate unless it's just money. We've seen this with uh, stuff when we've moved. Some of our kids, they want certain things and others want nothing to do with certain things. Well, that was your grandmother's. I don't care. That was your grandfather's. I don't have any interest in that. And the other things they fight over. Cindy, for example, and her family, when her folks died, there was, it was amiable, but there were certain pieces of furniture that Cindy's dad had built. And Cindy wanted to have those pieces of furniture because her father had built them and they held great meaning. Inheritance is an interesting thing. Uh, the key, of course, is you have to live long enough to get it. Right? When we think about a theological inheritance, we're going to look at a passage tonight in 1 Peter that talks about our salvation and our inheritance. And it's interesting to think about the language of Scripture and then how we understand that language and the economy, the way we use it. So we're in 1 Peter. This book is about Christians who faced persecution. It's about what it was like to suffer. They were the diaspora. They were spread away. They lived in a place that was not their home. They lived among a people where they did not belong. And even though they're strangers, even though they're exiles, Peter reminded them and us that you were chosen. You're disenfranchised, you're pushed away, you're not at home, but God chose you. And implicit in that choosing is you are an exile because of God's choosing. You're living in this stasis right now that wasn't your choice or your preference, but that's where God has you. We're objects chosen by him. Just to put it very simply, God chose us. We didn't choose him. We had nothing to do with our being chosen, which we've talked about the last two times. It's a little hard for some of us to grasp. And so now the elder statesman apostle Peter is going to explain in what's called a doxology. We, we think of ology meaning the study of something, biology, the study of life, zoology, the study of animals, so forth. When we think of a doxa is glory, so it's a study of God's glory. We think of doxologies being vertical songs. We're singing about God, not about our condition. Make sense? So doxology. This, these first 12 verses are, in a sense, a confessional doxology. Peter's telling his audience what to think about God. And the passage we're going to look at tonight is real simple. It's remember your new birth and hope in your inheritance. Remember your new birth and hope in your inheritance. Now, verses 3 through 12 is one sentence, technically, in the Greek. We're going to look at just 3 to 5 tonight, but let me read that section to get us oriented. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Remember this context, they're scattered, they're dispersed, and now he's moved from explaining their chosen relationship to him and now what it means, even though scattered, even though sojourners, you were chosen of God, and there's two things he wants them to hear at this section. Remember what God has done is the first one we're going to look at. Remember what God has done. Let's go through this a little slower than normally. When we read these salutations of any of the letters, Pauline or Peter's letters, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we just kind of rush over them. And it's normal in some sense. We kind of know this, but I want to take it apart a little bit to show you what Peter is doing here. The double designation God and Father should stop right away. How can he be both God and Father? And Peter's packing in an incarnation theology here and a Trinitarian doctrine in this first section that is pretty amazing for a very short few sentences uh, together the way we read it in English. Jesus is at once God, but Jesus is also a son. And this was a conundrum for the Jew of the first century. It's a conundrum for people today that don't like the idea of a Trinitarian Godhead. How can he at once be God and at once be the son and be submissive to God? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it makes you scratch your head. And it was taken for granted among the early church that believers understood this Trinitarian concept. Our salvation hinged upon understanding this Trinitarian doctrine. Double designation, God and Father. It's incomprehensible. You can't explain it adequately for any human brain to accept it. But Jesus is at once God and he's also submissive. And then he says, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at these words one at a time. Our Lord. The personal relationship that Peter says, he's our Lord. He's not this distant God that's unapproachable. He's our Lord. There's a personal aspect to it. Lord means master. And again, these words, we read them so often, we just run by them. They're just a bunch of synonyms in our language. But Lord has an interesting weight to it that I think is countercultural. Today, we speak a lot about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We like that language. It's good, it's good language. You have a personal relationship with Christ. But I think over time, what has happened, I call it horizontal Christianity, it's become more about the relational aspect than the worshipful aspect. He's our master. He's God. And it, it smacks a little bit the idea of our culture loathing authority, and I understand that when authority runs afoul, when leadership makes uh, unfortunate choices and decisions and says things we wish they wouldn't say, it's hard to follow leadership. But the culture and our context can't excuse our behavior. Somewhere along the line, we have to choose to worship a master, even though that idea is abhorrent to much of our culture today. The idea of authority. He's not your pal. He's not your buddy. He's your master. He's your Lord. Um, I've heard many people pray, and they pray to daddy, dear daddy, glossing the word Abba from the, from the New Testament. And I think culturally that, that's an improper use of the term. 
it's an endearing thing to call him father, but that doesn't mean he's your dad. Does that make sense? Is it too fine a point? Here's the thing. He called us friends, not vice versa. He said, you're my friend if you obey my commands. You're my friends because of these things. But he didn't say, you can call me pal. The human aspect of our Jesus is important. He understands your weaknesses, my weaknesses. He suffered. He endured. He knows every temptation any human could have experienced. But he's not our buddy. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord meaning master. Jesus, of course, is the Hebrew word Joshua, which the Old Testament authors understood as that Yahweh would save, that he would come to save us. And then the final word Christ is Christos. And this means the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who was to come. So you stack all these together, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ He's our master, he's our Lord, he's our savior. He's the one who comes to save and he's the anointed one. He's the one that was set apart. There is only one who holds this identity, period. There's only one master, period. I don't know if you saw the the Lord of the Rings trilogies that Peter Jackson did. The screenplay, of course, written, uh, Peter Jackson took Tolkien's story. And how do you take those books and even though those films are 80 hours long. How do you uh, put that whole thing into, into one movie? There was a line in there when Gandalf and Solomon are, are fighting in the big spire thing, and they're throwing each other around with their wizard sticks, whatever they are. And Gandalf, as he's about to fall off the edge, makes this comment. There is only one Lord of the ring, only one who can bend it to his will, and he does not share power. And there's big debate because it's not in Tolkien's actual record. And when, if you know enough about the Silmarillion and the story behind Lord of the Rings, um, I wonder if Jackson and his screenwriters, what they meant by that, who they're referencing to, I can't tell you for sure. But I think it applies very well to Christ. There's only one Lord. Only he can bend things to his will and he does not share power. And I think it's a good at least visual for me. There's only one who has this identity. There's only one who's a master, and there are no others. Well, what God has done continues according to his great mercy. And again, these are words we know perhaps too casually. He did this not because of our goodness, not because of our effort, not because we figured things out, not because we concluded one day he did this according to his, okay, I kind of like Joe. I kind of like Al, I kind of like Don, I kind of like Bill, I kind of like Susan. They're a good person, I'll pick them. He did this according to his great mercy. We didn't survey world religions and say, that's the one I'm going to believe in. I remember hearing a politician during the last cycle say that uh, he had studied many religions and chose one because it made the most sense. I thought, that's the epitome of hubris. I've studied them, and I chose the one. Talk about making God in our own image. I came to the conclusion that's the best one. It's like betting on ponies. Which one's the best one? According to his great mercy. By the way, there's a differentiation between grace and mercy, right? Grace is God's unmerited favor, undeserved favor in the face of deserved wrath. Mercy is God's choice to be compassionate when he doesn't have to be. He just chooses to be compassionate. If you were raising children, 
uh, grace would be, uh, they came home and uh, destroyed your car, had taken your credit card and maxed it out, and uh, you said, no problem, honey, here's the new Escalade. That'd be grace. Mercy would be the same action that kid came home, you didn't kill him. That's compassion, two different things. Grace is when God does something undeserved and lavish when we deserve just the opposite. Compassion and mercy tie in together. It's grace and mercy. By his great mercy, he caused us, look at this, to be born again. Now, most of your English Bibles opt for the word caused. There are a few English translations that say gave or given to us. He gave us new birth or he was given to new birth. The causal force is more interesting to me. He caused us to be born again. This word, it it takes five English words to translate one Greek word here. Caused us to be born again is one Greek word. Anagoneo, anagoneo. Only occurs two times in the New Testament. Both are in Peter. Both are in the first chapter. Verse 3 and verse 23. It's a very curious word, anagoneo. He chose us. He caused us to be born again. You know the word monogenes if you've been around Bible teaching churches. When they talk about John 3.16, the only begotten son of God. Monogenes, geneo, that same root word. We hear Genesis in there. We hear beginning. We hear born in that English, the way Greek and Middle English and so forth, Latin work their way into the way we use language. Anagoneo, he caused us to be born again. Again, it's a funny thing that I think this horizontal thing I'm on right now um, he chose you, you had an encounter with him, he called you to himself, and you responded by faith. And I think this nomenclature of in, in Jesus, you hear it sometimes, uh, no, no disrespect meant to our uh, esteemed worship leaders here, um, but when the language of music is a lot about inviting people in, I, I like that idea, I invite you to worship, invite you to join in, invite you to pray, invite you to sing. But this invitation that God's inviting us to do something is nowhere found in Scripture. It's just not. He caused us to be born again by his mercy. He's a sovereign master and he has no rival. He's not inviting you and me. Hey, come along. Come to the party. I'm throwing a really cool Christmas party. Why don't you come? There's no invitation. It's here's your sinful condition. Here's the call of the gospel You respond by faith and follow me. It's a command. Obedience and faith are an interesting mix in the New Testament because we trust, we embrace, we believe in him, but there's an obedient aspect to that that will never merge together in our our own minds. Both exist, but it's not one or the other. It's not that I, I walked the aisle, I prayed the prayer, I did the Roman road, therefore I'm a Christian. And those are the means by which we trust Christ. But it was his call, and as Peter's hammering home from the very beginning, you're chosen according to his mercy. He caused us to be born again. It's an incomprehensible truth for a culture that thinks more about tolerance and love and can't we all get along and party divisions are so vitriolic and it's just an interesting time to live. Don't let the world's culture change your theological thinking. Don't let the world teach theology. No matter how loud the rabble gets, even among Christians, come back to here. Come back to here. Check it for yourself. See what the scripture says, like the Bereans, right? The incredible news is that he, he granted new birth to the hopeless. 
That's the magical, magical mystery of all this. God revealed himself in our Lord Jesus Christ to grant salvation without any contribution on man's part. Now, notice we're not simply saved from something, but we're saved to something. And Peter says we're saved to a living hope. Hope is another word. What does hope mean? If you're a movie buff like I am, you think of Shawshank, hope. It's the greatest of things, you know? It's the, the whole, boy, it's really powerful. What, what's hope? Is it like the engine that could? I hope, I hope, I hope, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. That's not faith or hope. That's just hope and hope. Hope, biblically, is in something confidently that we know is going to happen. Faith is the confident assurance of things hoped for with the conviction of things not yet seen. The confident assurance with the conviction of things not yet seen. I don't just hope that something out there is going to happen. I'm hoping in what Christ has said. I'm putting hope in not just his word, but what he said about himself. It's the conviction of what will happen. We were delivered from hopelessness in contrast to human disappointments, to lost marriages, to broken hearts, to lost dreams, to lost jobs, lost investments, to things that swell up late in our minds at night and remind us of of what we don't deserve or do deserve. Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were at one time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. What a dark place to be from, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul stresses that by worldly standards, we were far worse off than we understood, having no hope and without God. You, know, you have to be around certain segments of population, I think, to understand hopelessness. Some of us in this room are touched by addictions in our family. And when you are around addicts, uh, you see a glimpse of hopelessness. Some of you have been around people that have been abused or grew up in a very abusive situation and they are hopeless. If you've tried to work with the homeless, many of whom uh, probably have some kind of mental challenges and mental struggles, and they're in and out of shelters and homes and so forth and so on, there's a hopelessness there. Um, I can't tell you the number of times I was uh, asked to go speak at some Central Union mission or whatever, and when you're a poor seminarian, you go wherever they want you to preach. So you go and you preach to this room of people. They have no interest whatsoever in listening to you say anything. They just want to get their food and get out of there. And that's the price of the meal, so to speak. And you see hopelessness. You almost have to go back to see where you and I came from before you understand how bad off we really were. Spend time with people who are in and out of chronic cancer treatments, chronic pain, disability, And he says, Paul says, having no hope without God in the world. Not so for the believer. Not so for the man or woman who's trusted Christ. It's not being just saved from something. It's being saved to something. And Peter says, you're saved to a living hope. We await the undiscovered country. We don't get to see it up close and personal yet, but we're taught it's there and we believe it by faith. That's the reason that we have living hope is because of Christ's resurrection. It was his resurrection from the dead. So the whole only reason Christianity stands apart from other isms and ologies and religious systems is because he was resurrected, and that's the hope of the believer. I don't know if you've read uh, 
Natalie Babbitt's Tuck Everlasting. Did you ever read that book to your kids or read it as a kid? If you, those of you who have got kids and grandkids, you've got to read Tuck Everlasting. It's a sweet little book. It's a fun book to read. And it's the peril of finding this source of water that if you drink, you stay at that age forever. Now, some of us kind of like that idea. The fountain of youth, right? You drink it and you're going to stay. I'd prefer to be 35 than 60 when I found that water. But nevertheless, uh, we drink that water and you stay forever. The book goes into the pain of never growing old and the family having to move from place to place every decade or so lest they be found out and wanting to die and they can't die. And do they tell other people about the spring or not? And it's, I don't know anything about Natalie Babette, where she is in her beliefs, but it's a poignant story about the fallacy of wanting to live forever that would be true hopelessness unless we're saved to something. You really think you want to stay on this planet and live past 120? What is it in our head that we want to keep on living? Well, I think Christ put eternity in our hearts. The key is where and with whom. And if you live forever and everybody's dying around you and you're moving from place to place, it would be a pretty crummy existence. It would be hopelessness. Well, what God has done, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's the first thing Peter's telling us in this section. And now he's going to tell us what God has given you. Remember what God has done. He's caused you to be saved. Now remember what he's given you. Verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Remember what God has given you, this imperishable inheritance. Now, imperishable is undefiled. It won't fade away. There are four negatives that Peter uses when he writes this. You know the prefix ah is a negative phrase. So ah millennial means no millennium. Okay, So anytime the a is prefixed to a word. I won't read them in Greek because I'm not that good in speaking Greek. I'm better at reading it. But all these four words have a lilt to them. They end in the same verbal form, most, each one of them. So it's, it has a lilt when you read them. And the point is not just the lilt of the language. They're all negative in describing the, the, the inheritance we're going to have. Imperishable, it can't rot, rot, it can't rust, it can't be destroyed, it can't fade away. Uh, think of uh, Matthew 6, 20, where Jesus talks about put your treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy. The first one, the second one, undefiled is the word undefiled. It's pure that's turned around with this negative phrase in the beginning. It's, it, in the ancient Greek, it was like a stain on something. It was defiled. You couldn't get it out. There was no oxyclean in those days. So it was ah, ah before it, undefiled. It will not fade away. And this only time this occurs in the New Testament is here. So we, we don't have a lot to go on other than the idea of a flower that never fades might be an idiom. William MacDonald r- r- remarks and he says, the inheritance is death-proof, sin-proof, time-proof. The inheritance is death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof. So it's interesting. Why does Peter only tell us in negative terms what this imperishable inheritance is like? It's not this way. It's not this way. Why doesn't he tell us in positive? Because you can't. 
Human language is going to fail at this point. So Peter's description, the grandeur of a heavenly inheritance, there's no way I can explain it to you. I can tell you it won't perish, it won't fade away, it's undefiled, and that's the best I can give you. It's reserved for us in heaven, verse 4 and 5, and protected. It's a reservation. It's taken care of. It's not the idea of calling and making a reservation in a hotel or a restaurant. It's the idea of a military guard watching over something. If you've traveled to military bases, some of you perhaps have been in the service, and you go to a military base, depending on where they are, they have uh, 24-7 guards, electronic, physical, all sorts of means where they're keeping the perimeter of that property guarded. If you ever have the opportunity to go to the White House of the so-called 17 Acres or Andrews Air Force Base, some of our uh, treasures in our country, you'll see security like you've never seen anything in your life. And they're guarded all the time because what is in there is a value. It's precious to the nation. Well, Peter says that Jesus Christ has reserved a place for you in heaven. The idea is a military watch over it. If reservations aren't enough, he's protected it. Protected by the power of God. Also a military term. It's confined to a space where no one can touch it. God's made a reservation there. He's watching it and no one else can take your place. The point is what God has reserved and what God protects. Again, it's sort of ludicrous to think we could do something to keep our salvation. If God called us, if he chose you before the finished world, if he caused you to be saved, he's protected and reserved a place for you, where do you and I think we could change that if we don't go back to understanding who he is? That he's God, that he's sovereign, he's a master, that he's the anointed one. He's the one that Israel hoped for, the Joshua who would come to save well, you take the inheritance together. Our past, we were chosen by God. Our present, even though scattered, we're protected by God. And our future is ready and reserved for us. Our past is chosen by God. Our present, even though we're scattered, is protected by God. And our future is preserved for us. It's a salvation that we can't comprehend until we get there. So we live by faith. What God has done, he caused you and me to be saved. What he has given, an imperishable inheritance. Inheritance is only good enough if you live long enough. When uh, Cindy and I got married, um, I bought her an engagement ring and a wedding ring. And my maternal grandmother had a ring that was in my mother's little jewelry box my whole life. I guess it's about a four, maybe five millimeter gold band. It's been in that jewelry box for years. And I said to my mom, hey, can I have your mom's wedding band for my wedding? And she said, sure. And she was delighted to give it to me. And Cindy was fine that she didn't have to buy one. So we took it to the jeweler and had it sized a little bit. And uh, that was an inheritance to me. My maternal grandmother, who they don't know how old she was when she died. She came from Italy. You know, you know the stories. She might have been 15. No one knows. She might have died in her 80s. No one really knows. She was 85 or 90. No one knows. So this ring's probably north of 200 years old now. My dad passed away seven years ago, and when he died, I said, hey, Mom, what are you going to do with Dad's ring? You want it? Of course I want it. So I took it over here to a a friend of ours in Brentwood, and I said, hey, can you uh, make these fit perfectly together, solder them together? And he did a beautiful job for me. So I'm my father's wedding band of 62 years of marriage, 
and my grandmother's, let's just say 60, I don't know how long, no one knows. Um, but that doesn't mean anything to anybody else. If I took it to a jeweler, he'd probably say it's worth about 60 bucks of gold today. Right? It's, it's worth nothing. But that inheritance, when I look at that ring, in fact, during our move, we just moved into our house about two weeks ago, and during our move, I had misplaced the little box I had watches and these two rings in. And uh, I thought they were, someone had picked them up in the move. And my great son-in-law dug through the house till he found the box <laughs> just the other day. So I thought I'd lost them. I didn't care about the money or the value. It was, that, that's my father and my maternal grandmother's rings. What a terrible thing if I lost that. I was even thinking about, I could probably go find a jeweler and make one that looked just like it. Doesn't mean anything to anybody else. It means a world to me. How much more your spiritual inheritance that was set aside and reserved and protected for you, for you. He caused each one of you in here. to be, If you've trusted Christ, he caused you to be saved. You and I respond in faith. We'll never figure it out. The arts will go back to again and again. We responded by faith. But what Peter's telling us in this section of this letter is he chose you. He caused you to be saved. He's your master. And there's an inheritance waiting for you that I can't even describe. I can only tell you what it's not like. I don't know about you, but that gets my theological juices flowing. Because he loved you. He chose you. He caused you to be saved. Now, who's the more grateful person? The person that understands that and says, wow, my life should now be a thank you back to God? Or the person that did their part? The person that walked the aisle and prayed the prayer, and I believed in this. I did my contribution. Therefore, that's how I know I'm saved. It's sad to think many Christians hold this view they can lose their salvation. Boy, Peter isn't th- saying that at all. He caused you to be saved. You responded by faith. You'll never figure it out. Just accept it. <laughs> Just accept it. Let me tell you some better news. There's an inheritance waiting for you. I can't even articulate it. It's not like anything you can ever imagine. And it waits for the believer in heaven. You see, Old Testament believers saw inheritance as land, livestock, and summarily Cana, the promised land. That's what the Old Testament believer understood was an inheritance. The New Testament believer understands Christ is the inheritance. We are at once the heir to the inheritance. We're called his heirs. And our eternal reality is better than anything we can build, any empire we can hand off, anything we can bequeath to someone else. I suspect after I'm dead, uh, one of my older girls might fight for this. But will it mean anything to anyone else after that? Probably not. No matter what we bequeath after a certain time, it's some old stuff, right? You have an inheritance that's eternal in the heavens with your name on it, guarded and protected by him for you. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. 